Hey everyone, welcome back to the Hashrate Happy Hour podcast. This show is brought to you by Giga Energy, a leading electrical manufacturer focused on Bitcoin mining. This Monday, we have yet another special bonus episode where I'm sitting down with Tony Clark, the president and founder of Great Oaks. This is an extremely long overdue episode where we go into all things engineering, procurement, and contract, or EPC work, and we take the time to go into some of the basics of what goes into building a Bitcoin mining facility. Have you ever wondered what the average time to build a large-scale mining facility is, or maybe what the average cost should be or could be per megawatt? Well, stay tuned, because we cover all of that and a ton more. We covered so much, and we actually had so much more that we wanted to cover that we're actually going to be re- releasing a round two next Monday, so keep an eye out for that as well. This show is managed by Foreman. Get it? See what I did there? Foreman helps you manage your entire Bitcoin mining facility all from one simple dashboard. That's demand response and power controls to miner and facility mapping and business intelligence all on one clean dashboard. Guys, this software is absolutely incredible and it's what I personally use to manage the small minor fleet that I have online. And I think that's what I love about this the most is that it even lets the small miners, the plebs, have the ability to manage their computers like the pros. It's always also really impressive when I walk into these large mining facilities for my day job and I look around in their control room and I see a 70 inch plus flat screen TV with their entire mining operation completely mapped out in Foreman, exactly how you would see it out on the floor. This is a truly invaluable tool for miner management, as well as being able to manage and automate your curtailment strategy. So please go check them out online today at foreman.mn. That's F-O-R-E-M-A-N dot M-N. And no, that's not because they're huge fans and supporters of the state of Minnesota. That's just their website domain. It's foreman.mn. Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council, a Bitcoin-first, nonprofit industry organization working to make Texas the jurisdiction of choice for Bitcoin mining and blockchain innovation. They will be hosting North America's premier policy conference for Bitcoin and the digital asset ecosystem on November 15th through 17th in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information, please visit their website at texasblockchaincouncil.org. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Tony Clark, the president and founder at Great Oaks. Tony, welcome to the show. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. And uh, been listening to your show for a little while now and always impressed by your perspective and the guests you have on your show. So I'm honored. Thank you. (laughs) I'm I'm really flattered by that, Tony. I appreciate that a lot. Um, What's what's going to be super fun about this episode is this kind of like back to back a little bit different of a spin and a take on the the traditional episode. We're going to get into EPC, construction, engineering, costs, timelines. Like we're going to get into kind of the nitty gritty of what it takes to like build a Bitcoin mining facility. And and then also like how that ties into working with the, the electrical company, the utility companies. So 
I'm I'm super excited. Um, and I, I, you know, conversely, I love the work that you're doing. Um, you know, have gotten to see some of the work that you've done out in out in Ohio and and some of those projects. So I'm pumped to get into this today. Yeah, me too. Thanks. Um, yeah. So I, you know, the best the best way and and the way that I like to start these episodes is I like to get a sense of the guest background and then like what led you into this crazy world of Bitcoin mining. And so maybe, maybe we can start there if you don't mind. Sure. Well, I was born. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) I went to, uh, (laughs) uh, went to a small school in Pennsylvania, Grove city with got my engineering degree there and immediately, you know, entered the consulting engineering world and, uh, you know, started designing 600 volt and below systems, the, kind of the uh, entry level uh, systems, cut my teeth there. And uh, I did this for a handful of years. And then I just I realized there was something fundamentally wrong with the industry. Um, so I made a career to a career change to design build, uh, which is a completely different world uh, than regular consulting. Um, so when I made that switch, uh, I spent the next 11 years, uh, not only understanding the engineering side, but getting, uh, you know, knee deep in the construction side. Uh, so I, I'm a professional engineer stamped in, uh, eight States. And I also took the liberty to get my contractor license just to have a better understanding of the other side of the table. Uh, I think sure. there's a little bit of a, uh, little bit of a gap there. Um, so uh, I worked primarily, and I work primarily in the industrial and um, commercial markets doing turnkey. When I say turnkey, I mean design build. And um, I really, along the way, I really felt drawn to the high voltage side. Um because it was different. Uh, there were so many projects that I saw that crossed my desk that were over-designed. They were completely, uh, extremely expensive and took forever to install. So there was really, I, it was about this time that I identified the gap in the high voltage. Uh, really seeing a lot of um, antiquated legacy designs and those were mm. getting translated into uh, the industrial and commercial market, which was just failing completely. Um, so these are voltages from like 4160 all the way up to 138, uh, you know, getting familiar with buying material, running uh, labor, uh, project management, that kind of stuff. Um, so all this experience uh, led me to an introduction in, I think it was 2019, uh, to build the first large scale, I say large scale in quotations, uh, Bitcoin mining operation in Ohio, which is where I'm at. Uh, it was a uh, 138 kV, 20 megawatt air facility, which at the time was humongous. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it's funny how times have changed because um, that's that's that would consider that medium or small nowadays. That, um, it's still a big project these days, though. I mean, like you, when people go and see a project of that size or a, a build and, and a site like that, that's a big site. Yeah, it's it's got you're right. You're right. It's got some complexity to it. Um, 
but so I, it really, this industry, I was a part of that. <clears throat> it really caught my attention. And, and after that, I, I learned just how small the community was. And this is back in 1920 range, uh, which has gotten bigger then. but I had some amazing introductions at that point and some referrals. So, um, so since that time, I've had the opportunity to partner with uh, some some of the most successful progressive players in the space. Really exciting projects, different locations across the country. Um, and, you know, I was putting it together and I've designed or constructed almost 700 megawatts worth of sites uh, in Whoa. the past four years. So, you know, it took me some time to sit down and add that up. But... Um, yeah, that's yeah. that's um, and it's all the different types of immersion. It's air. Um, it's all sorts of different incoming voltages. So it's really an array, small to big. Um, and each one of those has its nuances. So um, that's kind of how I got involved. I think, uh, you know, I'll just close out saying I'm super passionate about this industry. Like I told you in the intro, I'm not of the industry, I, I partner alongside it, but I really want to see, you know, the best for all these miners out there. Oh, yeah. Um, 700 megawatts. That's, uh, you're almost to a full gigawatt of, of build out in a four year period. That that's huge. That's, uh, that's impressive as hell. <laughs> so you mentioned, <laughs> well, you, you don't realize some... it when you're in it. <laughs> but... Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I know you're, you're the type of guy, you're just, your head's down, you're working and, and yeah. So it takes a, one of those like, Hey, pop your head up for a breath of air for a second. Be like, Whoa. Um, you mentioned, like, I want to kind of take you back to, you mentioned something I want to, you know, kind of just dig into a little more. You said you noticed a lot of like legacy design and like outdated high voltage, I don't know if it was the infrastructure or what specifically. And then you mentioned a voltage that you don't hear very often, which is 4160. It, so maybe talk to us a little bit about like how you were interacting with that and, and how you are maybe like, are you helping the power company switch away from that? Or are you advising people to stay away from that? Like maybe just kind of say a little more about the, all that. Sure. Yeah. I think, um, I think for a reasonable size site, I mean, we really should be looking at 13 to, I'm sorry, 12, 470 and above. And that's, that's the utility voltage. Um, yeah, below that, um, you know, your cop, your wire pricing, your equipment really starts to get expensive. Uh, your availability gets, starts to diminish mm -hmm. on the equipment. So, uh, you know, I, as I'm sure most of, your listeners are aware. I mean, 12470 or 13.2 transformers, they're everywhere. Um, and a lot of the equipment, it's just more on the high voltage side, it's more readily available. I think, you know, the next standardized voltage, 34.5, 34, 34,500, mm -hmm. it starts to diminish a little bit. And then you go, you know, primarily 69 and then 138 after that. And it gets, you know, scarcity takes into account there. But um, which each with each of those levels, there's 
you know, an expensive way, a Cadillac way to, to design this. And that's really what a lot of consulting engineers fall into, unfortunately. Um, and then there's the, what does code require and what keeps people safe design? And that's, that's where I really try to drive a lot of those designs to, to the latter. Um, because, and we can get into this some more, but it, it really, helps with costs, it helps with lead time, it helps with uh, labor negotiations, all that stuff. Sure. So are are you then just, well, so maybe I'm going to just back up. I've actually had a little bit of feedback recently that some of the the electrical jargon is kind of like, pew, like go, going over people's heads a little bit. So maybe just to like, for the sake of clarification, the 12470 is the primary voltage that you would be receiving from the power company. That's going to be what feeds into the receiving end of your transformer, which is then going to spit out like the more usable electricity, which is the 415 240 in the Bitcoin mining industry, right? Just to, just to clarify yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, break it down a little bit. Uh, the 12470, right, comes from the utility. They would traditionally want to meter it at that level, and then uh, then protect uh, do some you know fuses or breakers, so some protection, and then it would enter your transformer and at at, at the you know so anywhere around the the twelve four seventy even up to the thirty four five level. I mean, I would definitely recommend going just straight to four sixteen two forty. When you get to the little yeah. bit higher level, you do an inter, we call it an intermediate, a mid voltage. So that would be, you know, it takes 69 down to a mid voltage of 12470. And then, then you'd hit your pad mounts after that. Yeah. And those, that, that second scenario is, that's a pretty big undertaking because you're almost building a substation to then bring it down to a transformer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those yeah, are yeah. those would be the bigger sites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the those are the big daddies. Um, <laughs> yes. All right. So I promise we're going to move on in the conversation. But you mentioned another piece that I wanted to just quick ask you about. You said that some people tend to push clients to like the Cadillac version of like building out this type of a setup. Why are they doing that? Is that are th- are there incentives in place for normal EPC groups to do that, or why would they be pushing people to spend more to do it the Cadillac version rather than like the <clears throat> the Honda Civic version? <laughs> I'm not a car guy, um, can you tell? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Um, it really, and this is really probably one of my biggest complaints uh, of the industry is that you know these. These mining guys or the investors behind them, they know, they know mining, and yeah. I respect them so much for that. But they're turning over this thousand-dollar, million-dollar electrical project to an electrical contractor, who, in most cases, uh, doesn't have the the engineering backing. I mean, their their business model is to keep their overhead low, and so a lot of them don't hire engineers. Uh, there are the, the bigger ones do, uh, I'll give them that, but a lot of these, a lot of these infrastructure projects are happening with local electrical contractors who are extremely good at their craft and their trade, 
but um, you know they're paid by the size of the project. So when you've got the designer and the contractor is one person. Uh, a lot of times they will design it as a Cadillac because that makes them, you know, good money. Um, sure. So I really, really adv- advocate for having that middle person, that that intermediary. So I, I tell people all the time: spend a dollar up front, save ten dollars in the at the construction. Like you know hiring me or another engineer with similar traits to sit down and figure out all the nuts and bolts and then go bid it out on the open market so that you get the best price. That is a formula that really, I mean, I would say 30, 40% brings it down from someone that turns it over to a contractor to run it, to run it just outright. Got it. And that's super helpful. And it kind of leads into like, I'd love for you to walk through like, who is Great Oaks? You started the company. Um, so maybe go into like, who is Great Oaks? And then like, how do you fit within the staff? So let's just use an example of someone, someone wants to build a 50 megawatt site and maybe just kind of walk through maybe like, who is that, the the owner of that site? Who are they going to go to? And then like, where do you fit in in that stack? And like, how do you, because I think you kind of act as their quarterback for a lot of it. So maybe just kind of walk us through. Someone wants to build a 50-megawatt site that came to you. Who else are they interacting with and where do you step in? Yeah, so um, getting involved early on is, is really the best uh, best playbook if we're, if we're doing football analogies. Um, it's Oh, no, I'm not a football guy either, Tony. Shit. <laughs> I played college football, so that's, that's all right. All right, we'll, we'll stick with football then. Yeah, we'll stick with football. Um, yeah, really, uh, joining up early on is uh, is a success there because um, the due diligence part of a project is probably one of the most, if not the most, part of this entire you know this entire fifty megawatt build out, and it's understanding. Uh, all the initial variables, actually not all the initial variables, but all the variables throughout the, throughout the lifetime of the uh, site. So it's, it's not only initial CapEx, but it's lifetime costs. It's um, utility lead time. It's what materials available at that point in time when they want to do it. Uh, so it's, it's really, you know, what opportunity costs do we want to mm-hmm. accept you know, in exchange for some additional funds or a different longer timeline. I mean, all these variables are kind of getting swirled around in a pot and, and you're making that best use case scenario from there. So, so great Oaks is we're a small team, you know, crypto is uh, really an emphasis of our firm. Uh, and it's not all of it, but it's definitely <clears throat> a, a large uh, percentage of it. And uh, it's really just um, u- utilizing what I've built over the past 15 years, which is projects designed around supply chain, availability, cost management, and constructability. Uh, <clears throat> it, w- it requires, like I tell people all the time, it requires more upfront work, but it's worth it in the end. Um, because even if, even if a project falls through, it falls through intelligently. It's not because something happened that made it, you know, an explosion happen. We knew the variable up front, 
we weren't willing to yeah. accept it. So we said, no, thanks. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's really bring you on right away. It's just, just get you, get you out there right away and, and involved. And then you're, you're the one who's also then going to like quarterback for them project management for the build out. Right. So it's like, you'll, you'll help yeah. them kind of with all this up front, and then you, you'll take it all the way through to build. Yeah. There's a term in our industry called owner's rep. That would be what I align most likely with. However, most owner's rep are just, you know, buddy, buddy with the owner and they know the industry. Well, I know the industry, but I'm also, I have the technical side to support that. So it's really, I feel, you know, a win-win situation. Um, and, you know, yes, coming alongside early on, but knowing, you know, you know, my full bounds, I can help with your construction and I can run the contractors doing it, or I can just tee up, tee them up, do the bidding for you. And then the contract resides with the, with the end user, any format that makes them comfortable. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Cause it's, it's nice to just kind of see where you fit into this. Cause I, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways to slice a, a project like that. I mean, I, you can sub out all the work yourself. Uh, there's just all sorts of ways that, that a group looking to build a 50 megawatt site can, can do. Um, one thing we, we kind of talked about this offline, but you're, you're also doing like energy audits for them. I'd love to hear what what does that look like how does that go maybe just touch on that a little bit more yeah it's it's not maybe not so much as a energy audit as it is like an ongoing commissioning but um where that comes from is in my uh prior to great oaks i had the opportunity for many years to partner with the corporate sustainability board uh for one of the largest defense contractors in the world no names um and my team uh, scrutinized every energy intensive, energy saving capital project on an annual basis. I mean, we ran all the numbers uh, providing, you know, we were the unbiased IRR, ROI person. So we would get involved, run the numbers, determine where we could um, trim the fat, so to speak, on all these jobs because, in the corporate world, you submit a job for to get a wit or to build a widget, but you know attached on there, you know three sucklings that are also you have to like scrape them off. Like, no, you can't do this. Um, so that's really what I'm doing is applying that to in real time to these designs. Is just going back to kind of what we talked about at the beginning, where there's different ways to design things. There's the there's an expensive way, and then there's a cost effective way, and incorporating that as as part of that energy energy audit or real-time energy use. Sure. Okay. I appreciate that. Um, I, I actually, I had meant to ask you this uh, previously and I'm, I'm now just re-remembering. I wanted to ask you this kind of like in conjunction with how you fit into someone who wants to build out a project and where you fit into their stack. Um, one of the other things I hear kind of on and off is like the payment structures for like the EPC work or, or like you said, um, you know, kind of how you work. Are you guys a cost plus percentage 
type of a, a model? Does that help you? Or, well, rather, let me just ask, are you cost plus percentage or are you just a fee or is there some type of like incentive aligning that you like to do with with the project owners? Uh, it varies. Um, we've done cost plus. We've done just strictly fee based. We've done hourly. Um, we've done a fee based uh, divided up over the length of the construction to help uh, kind of cash flow a little bit better. Um, so really, I, I don't have uh, a big agenda related to that. It's just uh, whatever the cost, the end users come forth. Got it. Yeah, I just was curious. I, again, you, you hear all sorts of different ways to, you know, several different ways to skin the cat on that. So I was just curious. Um, it also depends, too, on the size of the project. Like if I'm doing a 50 megawatt site, it's, you know, probably with economies of scale, it's not completely fair to do cost plus. So I will come up with some alternative fee structure that benefits everybody. Got it. Okay. Yeah, it's good to know, too, that, uh, yeah, that that percentage can balloon pretty quickly when you're talking about 50, 75, 100 megawatt facility. Yeah. yeah. So, Tony, I'd actually I'd kind of like to just dive into like some of the rest of the numbers. I I'm I'm curious to just kind of get get into like the weeds on we'll, we'll stick with that 50 megawatt example. What? Have you seen, so like you said, you, you've built out 700 megawatts kind of over the span of this four years here. If you had to put like average, like time to construct a 50 megawatt site, and let's just, let's maybe help simplify the example. 50 megawatts on 12470, uh, you're, you're already involved in everything. How long would it take like time-wise? Is that three, four months, five, six, seven months, a year. Do you, do you have a, like an average time someone could expect to take to build that out? So a couple clarifying questions. I would sure, hope yeah. at a 50 megawatt site where we're higher than 12,470. Um, I think there is a, a tipping point on the economies of scale. Um, <clears throat> uh, it could be around 50 megawatts where I would bump to the next level and do an intermediate um, because again, just the way electrical design is there's uh, code nuances that you can get away with, 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 with higher voltages to save costs. Um, but uh, you know, 50 megawatts site uh, if you're, if you're, you know, it kind of falls into two categories, the permanent structure. So four walls and a roof, or a containerized site. I think each of those are two different animals completely. Sure. Um, timeline on uh, a new build, and this could be it could be anything. I've done prefab metal buildings, Kwanzaa hut, timber framing, traditional steel frame. Um, it's all it's all over the place. I think um, steel framing has caught up now. It used to be quite behind during COVID, but it's mm. it's, it's a lot better now. So I would definitely uh, push people in that direction if they're if they want to do permanent. Um, but but you're looking at for permanent, yeah, 50 megawatt, probably six months um, to get it done, four to six, depending on when you count start or count go is. Um, 
but that would give you enough time for all the materials to arrive and stuff okay. like that. <clears throat> um, does that, yeah, con- yeah, does that scale up or down with the size? So now if I came to you and said, Hey, Tony, I personally am interested in a two megawatt build out containerized and I, well, let's stick to brick and mortar, you know, four walls and a roof. Now, does that scale up and down if I say it's it's only two megawatts and I want, you know, a, a building? I don't know if it's a linear relationship, but it definitely scales. Um, so if you want to build a two megawatt building, which wouldn't be that big, and, you know, you're talking one transformer, um, much less. I mean, much less. Month, month and a half, two months. I mean... Depending on, you know, in that case, for that size, I'd do a prefab building, which you can go get off the shelf and just hire someone to assemble it. Um, so a lot of two different kind of apples and oranges, but it is for smaller systems, definitely shorter. And now a quick word from our sponsor. This show is powered by Giga Energy. Giga Energy is a vertically integrated Bitcoin mining company that manufactures all of the electrical infrastructure needed to start mining Bitcoin. Whether that's medium voltage switchgear, PDUs, or power cables for your miners, the team at Giga Energy has you covered. Reach out to their sales team today for all of your electrical infrastructure needs at sales at gigaenergy.com. Use the word hash rate for the subject of the email and you'll get 5% off your order. All right, now back to the show. Okay. And maybe last just like checking question on the the small one is I I had a good question there, I promise. That's uh this is one of those brain fart moments. We'll we'll move on to okay, so we'll 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 can that one. Um so maybe moving it up bigger now so we just talked about two megawatts building. Now let's go to the other end of the spectrum, hundred megawatt. Um, does that then bump the timeline out so that instead of like six months, you're probably looking at like a year? Yeah. With a hundred megawatt site, you, you're more than likely 69 or 138 incoming. Um, you know, 169, that's towards the limit of what's, a, what a 69 KV uh, aerial conductor can even handle is a hundred megawatts. Um, <clears throat> so if you can get a dedicated circuit that works, but anyways, you would need to be build, building a, uh, dedicated step down substation for that. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, with maybe some stuff we're going to talk about in a little bit with, uh, sourcing, you know, materials and mm-hmm. alternate paths. Um, maybe eight months for something like that. I mean, if you, again, if you have everything teed up with, if we're excluding the utility, which is primarily the bottleneck, honestly, um, we're excluding the utility and it's strictly just go. Um, I would say, you know, eight to 10 months for a size uh, system like that. If you've got all your ducks in a row, we've done engineering, we, we know what material we're going to buy and, uh, the utilities teed up ready to go. Okay, because my my next question there was, is this timeline including energization? But it sounds like there's maybe a little bit of pre homework that you have to do to get all your ducks in a row. Would you say that kind of that that pre step or that pre homework maybe takes another two months 
on top of that to kind of work with the yeah. power company. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So kind of all like in. If someone, yeah. Go ahead. If someone called me today and right, we would go through probably, and they already had their site selected. Uh, we would go still go through the due diligence. We'd make contact with the utility and assuming they gave the nod on the power capabilities, I think within two months we'd be ready to, uh, you know, hit the go button. And that's the timing that I would say starts the eight to 10 months. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So just to kind of piece that together, you're looking at like 10, 10, let's throw a month in there for buffer and cushion, call it 11 months. Okay. For a hundred megawatt site, which is pretty substantial. That's a big site. Um, and yes, we are, we are going to come back to sourcing supply chain COVID problems that may or may not have gotten worked out still. Um, we'll get there maybe just to keep going on like the details and the numbers here stick to kind of the middle middle ground example the 50 megawatts what would you say or maybe you can't even do this is there like an average dollar per megawatt to build something like that out <clears throat> yeah yep i've i've been involved with um a, you know a handful of buildings um in in years past most recently in 22 but uh but up but since then mostly containerized sites honestly um i did go back and look at some of my numbers and i i don't sometimes i don't have all the you know privy to all the uh all-in costs the economics yeah. there but um i did a uh immersion uh uh, permanent structure immersion. So you're talking dry coolers outside, tanks, racking, all that. And that was, you know, early, middle, actually middle of last year. And that was about 400,000 per megawatt installed. And these numbers I'm okay. going to give you are all in. So this is the tanks, the electrical infrastructure, the building itself, like all of that excluding ASICs. I just, I don't, I excluded yeah, the, yeah. the actual pieces. Um, so that was an immersion, uh, permanent structure, um, an air cool permanent structure. Haven't done well though. And again, the supply chain is all over the place. So I'll do my best to give numbers, but, uh, air cool permanent structure should be around 150,000 per megawatt installed. Uh, I don't have any concrete recent numbers on that, but that's, I mean, a good rule of thumb is immersion is about half. I'm sorry, error is about half of immersion uh, across huh. the board. Um, if we're talking about a containerized, <clears throat> if we're talking about a containerized site, um, this is a very recent experience with that. We're going to be under 100,000 per megawatt installed. And that's, uh, again, everything that that's a, a containerized air, uh, 40 foot container, typical. I mean, there's obviously different manufacturers out there, um, but around 100,000 megawatt installed and um, about that's container. That's container like cement work prep electrical, which is like the transformer. It's that all of that rolled in is still 100 per megawatt. Well, it's site dependent. Okay. So yeah. If, wow. Um, I would say that excludes site work. 
there's no site work in there. Um, okay, okay. That would Which be isn't transformer cool. pad, trans, um, transformer pad, your incremental costs of the transformer per megawatt, and then all your other incremental costs uh, per megawatt. Um, it, again, it's it, 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 this is these are economies of scale. So if I'm talking like this, this is probably a 20 megawatt plus site. If you're going to do one, it's going to be more than this. Um, but okay, those are that's a good distinction. I, yeah, it's uh, it's an audio only. People can't see my. I'm like in shock at at the the dollar per like the all in you know dollar per megawatt on a containerized site. I'm I'm impressed. Um, shocked. Yeah, so. It's a good distinction, though, to say if you're doing one, two, five, even just five megawatts, right. uh, you're going to have a very different economy of scale and cost there. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I mean, recently I've been working on the bigger ones, so that's that's the mindset right now. But the smaller ones, you're going to be more than that. So, yeah, for sure. Wow. Again, I'm I'm impressed. Do you let's see if we can get even more granular on this do you know like rough ballpark percentages of like of that 100k to build a containerized solution what percentage is like the transformer what percentage is the container what percentage and then like the all other like do you happen to know is it like 30 percent transformer 30 percent container or um I, don't. I know I'm, I'm going, I'm going super yeah. granular. <laughs> I can get back to you on that though. <laughs> I'm looking for like a pie chart here, Tony, where it tells me what I can expect, like cost of container and, and transformer and then like all other and or work. No, I'm joking. That's uh, this is, this has been super, this has been super insightful and helpful just to like map out like timelines and cost and um, just kind of everything that goes into it. So now I want to bring you to like, how sticky has inflation been and like timelines to procure all of this stuff? Cause you kind of started before COVID and all of the crazy, like inflation hitting, you know, material cost and the impact on shipping. So maybe just talk through like what you've mm -hmm. seen with all that. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's something I'm really, I follow it every day, uh, <clears throat> keep in contact. So uh, this might be a little bit of a soapbox, but uh, <laughs> the past three years have been uh, just incredible. It's been eye-opening. I really, this pandemic really uh, exposed the weak links or, or like the single source. You know, we saw a lot of parts fall behind because all of a sudden, you know, all grounding bars are coming from one person and overseas and that person can't handle you know like a lot of stuff like that um every component's gone through its availability issues breakers panel covers steel lugs wire copper tubing um a lot uh the the part that we see a lot of today it's still happening uh is the small pieces parts i mean you know you're building a substation and there's a copper coupling that connects two copper tubes and you think, wow, that's like the most basic thing. But all of a sudden, you because you, you don't order it, you're like, wow, that's off the shelf. That's 12 weeks, you know, <laughs> just something silly oh. like that. Uh, and then it just it grinds everything to a halt. Um, 
So really, I mean, I mean, backing up at the beginning, we saw the big four, which I'll call like Eaton, ABB, Schneider, Siemens, those manufacturers, you know, they dominate 80% of the market, mm-hmm. uh, high voltage and low voltage. Uh, they came out and said, oh, look, we're going to build all these factories. We're going to ease the supply chain. But really, here we are two or three uh, years later, and those factories haven't been built or, or they're not even close to being done. And the plants haven't materialized. Yep. So it's really, it's, it's, that's odd. Um, and I just, just the other week I was reading an article where it says a lot of the other disciplines, mechanical, steel, concrete, they're all starting to show signs of, you know, I call it quantitative easing. We all use that, but uh, the electrical <laughs> is still bad and, and there's no easing in sight. Um, so I don't know if, this is the new norm uh, because, you know, if a manufacturer can look at their investors and say, I've got two years worth of backlog and that helps predict cash flow, dividends. I don't know. Um, you know, it could be, yeah. um, you know, we're seeing a lot of data center and semiconductor business uh, flood the domestic market. Those guys, I don't know if people know this, they hop in line. I mean, they go, the Amazons, the LGs, they go ahead of everybody. So when we're ordering equipment, you know, we're we're low on the tonal pole. Um, so nobody's going to tell you these things. Uh, and again, these are just my opinions, but it's it's hurting the overall industry, and it's causing a lot of pro- projects to uh, get scrapped or, or canceled. Um, okay, so to answer your original question. Substation equipment, if you went to traditional uh, purchasing patterns, you're still 50 weeks. I mean, 52, 60. Some people are quoting 84 weeks for bigger stuff like that. Uh, 84 weeks? Yeah. (laughs) It's not. I mean, this this isn't like panel boards where they crank out 10,000 of these a month. These are. SF6 breakers, go app switches. That's almost four years. 84 weeks. It should be a year and a half. <laughs> nope. Cool. Sorry. You're right. Yep. It's, <laughs> I'm really good at public math too, Tony. <laughs> uh, that's right. <laughs> but it's still, either way, I mean, I, you, yeah. So there's just, uh, so substation equipment's 50 weeks plus low voltage equipment. Again, depending on what it is. You're 12 weeks using traditional purchasing patterns, but you know we live in a thankfully we live in a capitalist society where there's always a solution. We always have competition, so we're starting to see small EMs and manufacturers sprouting up across the country, across the globe, to answer this call. Um, not to mention like the reconditioned market uh, is kind of going through an identity crisis with the influx of uh, requests. Um, we're also seeing, you know, companies which you're familiar with, establishing like overseas material pipelines, you know, yeah. um, to meet domestic requirements. I mean, a pipeline uh, that way is fantastic. All these reasons are why I established Great Oaks to to address these things and not be okay with the status quo. So um, that was my soapbox. I love it. I stay up on the soapbox because I mean, it's, this is a great, 
great, great thing to highlight, which is you come in and you help navigate that type of supply chain issue and you're saving. So what I did just to make myself feel better about the the math equation I just did there, I, I did, uh, I, d- I divided that by, by months instead. <laughs> so it's, um, just gonna, I, I thought that was 84 months. It's uh, so it's, I feel better about the math I just did there, but you know, you come in Tony and you, you say, all right, I'm going to navigate this bottleneck for you. I'm going to find like the giga energies of the world where they've established and built out these processes and supply chains to bring this a lot quicker, like leaps and bounds quicker, you know, um, so that's fantastic. I'm glad that you you got up on the soapbox to talk about that. That's um, what are you seeing with prices? Did prices come down? Was inflation transitory? This is tongue in cheek. I know the answer, but I'd love yeah. for you to touch on pricing. <laughs> um, it's been you know up, up, and up, and up. There's been no, there's been no down. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I think if you were to go out and, you know, just as a, you know, Joe Schmo and get pricing and compare pricing at three different prices. So we're going to compare, mm-hmm. uh, uh, let's call it a switch gear from one of the big four. You're going to get pricing from a uh, reconditioned outfit and you're going to get pricing from someone with uh, an, an overseas connection you know, that still meets you out, uh, requirements. Uh, I think you'll still see that the lowest price are your domestic big four. However, you have to be okay with the 50 weeks. Um, your, your next Uh, price will be your overseas option. And your last price is the recondition unit because they know you got, they know they got you. So it's ah, really, gotcha. it's all topsy turvy because, uh, it should be, you know, in years past before the pandemic, that would not be the order that they were in. Yeah. I would imagine it would go reconditioned overseas connection and then big four. Right. Yeah. Wow. It's a strange world. I, I mean, I was coming from 3M traditional manufacturing where, you know, we're kind of like, the, the big four, if you will, in, in some other manufacturing capacities. And yeah, uh, they, they looked at it daily. That's for sure. As far as like supply chains and, and raw material inputs and how kind of everything was, you know, coming together and it's, uh, they were still smoothing things out. And that was just a couple months ago, you know, at least, well, it's been almost a year since I was there last, but you know they were still working through that. So it's it's crazy. Yeah. It's definitely a fluctuating thing, um, but I, you know, we're you know we we are mobile enough at Great Oaks to pivot and to 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 make those phone calls early on to to the supply chain, going okay, what are you seeing, guys? I mean, you know, give me some information so that I can make a good design, and you know sure enough, every single one of them is like, man, you're the only one doing this. Nobody, we're bidding stuff. Nobody's calling us to say what's out there so that when it comes out, it's done. Just, you know, buy it and get it. So. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, again, I, I mentioned at the top of the show, like I, I really do admire, you know, all the work that you're doing because of the value that you bring to the groups that you work with. So this is, this is, this has been a fantastic highlight of, of that. I, you know, so Tony, <clears throat> we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, you know, your, your company, you guys do also work outside of the, the Bitcoin mining industry. How are the other segments going for you? It's industrial, commercial, warehousing. Um, how are those other segments going as far as like general, maybe industry sentiment or like, are you getting a lot of demand in those areas as well? Uh, yeah, so it's been, um, uh, like I said, I would say crypto is probably 50% of the work that we do. Um, but then the other 50% is, are all the verticals that you just described. Um, it's definitely been an interesting year for sure. Commercial construction uh, is definitely slowing down, uh, slowing down in some parts of the country, speeding up in others, I guess. So to answer your question, it's definitely regional based. Um, cause I am doing projects all over, uh, specifically here in Ohio, uh, you know, Columbus is, I think one of the fastest growing, uh, cities in the country right now. Uh, we're seeing semiconductors and Amazons and the Googles all building there. And, uh, so that's fantastic. Other parts of mm -hmm. Ohio are, are slow. I mean, people are, are getting, um, getting laid off, um, has there been an overall decline? Yes, probably uh, in, in the amount of project workflow. I think we've had a tremendous amount of work for the past two years, uh, two to three years, as uh, you know, government money was injected in um, and, you know, which we're still kind of seeing, but that's, that's easing a little bit. Um, is the construction industry hurting? No. Um, like I said, I the- no, no, it's it's just uh, it goes through ups and downs. So it's just it's molding into what it needs to be or, or where it needs to be. Um, but the, like I, like we talked about, the equipment manufacturing, there's still one or two year backlogs. So I would say um, not not tremendous change. Yeah. Well, and I think um, you know we were we were talking about before we hit we, before we hit record is you're you're probably soon to be looking for engineers to join the team. So, I mean, you're, you're staying very busy and, and very active. I was just curious how you were seeing those industries maybe impacted by high interest rate environments, bad debt environments. Um, you know, I, I do keep a pulse and, and a finger in the commercial multifamily world. Um, and it's hard out there. It's uh, mm -hmm. and, there, and not only that, but there's a lot of debt that's going to have to roll over soon, and they're going to be rolling into seven and a quarter percent interest rates. Yeah, <laughs> and that's like strong operators are getting handed seven percent interest rates. So with reduced like, occupancy, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, especially if it is not multifamily, yeah, reduced occupancy for sure. And there's not a clear path to like. Do we convert that building? Do we repurpose it? Or ah, yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um like you said, the next year or two. Uh, I mean, I I've, I've been a part of two projects just in the past couple months where I heard 
Like we cannot move forward with this because of 7% interest rates. We just can't. So like to your point, that's, that's a real thing. Uh, those were, um, actually one was multifamily and the other was uh, a commercial job. But so, yeah, I mean, it, that's, I mean, we all, we couldn't get used to, or, or people couldn't get used to the low, you know, the low interest rates forever. It's just not sustainable. But. Yeah. Uh, momentary pain while people kind of figure out how they're going to model, you know, the economics on these buildings. Um, and or valuations come down, which is going to cause a lot of pain, but it's been a little frothy. So um, for another episode or maybe another conversation, we, we can talk we can talk economics in uh, commercial commercial properties. That's a new podcast. Um, there you go. Multifamily economics. There, you know, there's actually like a shocking amount of those podcasts out there. So I'll, pro- I'll probably stay away. It's a very busy market, <laughs> so I'll okay. probably stay away from it. Um, I, I, I like, I grew up listening to, I grew up, I, uh, some of the first podcasts I ever listened to were like bigger pockets and, um, some other real estate syndication podcasts and stuff like that. So those were, those were actually some of my first like intros into podcasts in general. Um, maybe just to, to keep a tab on the time here. I I would be curious to get your take on like future outlook in Bitcoin mining. We're coming up on a having we're coming up on, you know, it's not the Bitcoin mining industry is not adverse to the effects of high interest rate, you know, debt environment too. So you kind of have this weird, like low access to capital with the having coming up. I would be curious what you think the future as far as like growth and expansion of the infrastructure is going to look like for the industry, just based on where you sit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a huge question. Um, I think overall I'm excited for the next four years, both with mining and with great Oaks. Um, you know, I think just diving into, the crypto world again being alongside it maybe not in it um definitely seen the massive amount of consolidation over the past year um and what do i mean by that they're laying i'm sorry let me start over specifically speaking on the crypto uh yeah arena definitely seen a lot of consolidation over the past uh past years they're preparing and building for the future um so what do i mean by that uh, i think the companies that are left the, the ones that have survived they're laying the groundwork and doing the due diligence and planning for massive behind the meter facilities either connected directly to the source of power like they're going to be owning and operating the power plant or connected nearby to it um they're just going to have lower uh, energy rates and economies of scale that just we just haven't seen. But, yeah. but those are the discussions and the calculations and the um, you know the behind the scenes things that are happening right now with that. Wow, it's exciting, and and you do sit kind of in this truly unique spot where, like you said at the top, you're not in it, but you're you're very involved in like the building and construction of this industry. And so that's a, it's a fantastic, 
perspective and, and outlook. I appreciate that. So as we kind of close here, Tony, I'd love for you to give a handoff to the audience or uh, plug, you know, how, how can they get in touch with you? How can they get in touch with Great Oaks? I want, you know, the audience to be able to find you. So please take a second here and, and you know, share all of that. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the best way to just find out more about us is visit the website, www.greatoaksco.com, Great Oaks Co. Uh, I've got um, a lot of information on there, some of our motivation behind what we're doing, uh, easy way to get a hold of us, um, some of our experience, licensure, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm just super excited to be on the show and just just to try to even inject a little bit of uh, my thoughts into your listening base and hopefully it gelled with some of them and if you would like to uh, get in touch with me a website's the best way or linkedin either one yeah great we'll and we'll link to both um tony you you shared a, a wealth of knowledge here i mean this is just this is the really tangible stuff that, you know, people who are interested in Bitcoin mining, even the power companies that want to work with the Bitcoin miners for them to understand costs, timelines, you know, just kind of the, the ideology around all this, uh, how COVID and inflation and, and timelines are all still heavily impacted. So now this was a much needed episode. So thank you very much. Appreciate your time and take care. Thanks, Ben. 